All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can together sing of your majesty. And I pray that now as we turn to your word that we would be able to see your glory, your majesty through your scriptures. Pray that you would overcome any resistance in our hearts and our minds. Pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would really be manifested here as we, uh, as we seek to understand you better, to know you better, and to, to really, <clears throat> excuse me, truly seek to do your will. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, I'll be reading verses 21 through 26. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." So why would I preach on anger and murder this morning as Jesus talks about this? Could it be that you all have been with your in-laws? <laughs> Some of you might be uncomfortable because they may be sitting right next to you. But we have to understand, truly we're angry and want to murder those that we love the most. That's, uh, I'm spinning that for you. But the reality is that's not why I'm preaching on this. I'm preaching on this because when I have opportunities to preach at Grace, I've been working through the Sermon on the Mount. Providentially, we find ourselves in this passage here this morning. So to understand the full force of this passage, we have to understand what has preceded this. And we know that Jesus, Matthew tells us in chapter 4, began his public ministry by declaring that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he demonstrates the power of his kingdom as he is healing people of various afflictions. And he is teaching as well. And it's astonishing the people. So much so that Matthew tells us large crowds are following him. And so Jesus goes up on a mountain with the crowds all around him and his disciples are at his feet. And he begins to teach his disciples. And what we have with his teaching is here, the Sermon on the Mount. He begins his sermon with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes give us the character traits of the followers of Christ. And he goes on to talk about the influence and the purpose of the follower of Christ, and that is to be salt and light in the world. But then Jesus shifts the focus to himself. He shifts the focus to his relationship with the Old Testament scriptures, namely the law and the prophets. And it's critical that we understand what Jesus is doing at this point. See, the Jewish people of the day were taught the law of God by the scribes and Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus would have been thought of as a rabbi because he had gathered a group of disciples to himself and he was teaching them the law. But we have to understand that Jesus' teaching is clearly different from that of the scribes and Pharisees. So much so that in this passage, or in the Sermon on the Mount, right afterwards in 728, it says when, when he finished 
saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he's teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The people had to understand back then that Jesus was not bringing a new and different teaching than what the law of Moses had, but actually he was rightly applying it. He was rightly teaching so that they would rightly understand it. And Jesus himself says he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we know he fulfills it in his life and in his teaching. But then he says something that absolutely shocks his hearers. He says, in order for you to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, if this was in movie form, the best way we could probably do it justice is the minute Jesus would have said that, the music would have stopped. People would have quit talking. They would look directly at him. Their jaws would have dropped. They would have been astonished. What? That's impossible. How can that be? Because if anybody will get into the kingdom of heaven, they thought it would be the scribes and Pharisees. But Jesus is going to go on to point out a fundamental error with the scribes and the Pharisees. And that is, they based their righteousness on outward conformity to the law, but without inward transformation of heart. They were all about the external rituals, but not the internal devotion that comes from a heart that truly loves God. So the scribes and the Pharisees misunderstood and they misrepresented the law of God to the people. And so six times in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see this in chapter 5, six times Jesus will say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And every time Jesus says that, he's correcting their teaching. At times, when Jesus says that, he's quoting directly from the scriptures, as the scribes and Pharisees did. But they did not give the full intent of the law, and Jesus gives the full intent. At other times, they contradict it. For instance, when Jesus, or when they say, you have heard it said, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, Jesus corrects them and says, you are to love your enemies and actually pray for those who persecute you. So in every case, Jesus is correcting the faulty teaching of the religious leaders of the day. Because what they were seeking to do is to relax the commandments in order that they could rightly apply them to their lives. In a sense, they're saying, as long as we don't murder, we're okay. So they're kind of playing by their own rules. In our cul-de-sac, uh, at times our kids love to play kickball with all of the neighbors that come. And at times I go out there to play, but I find myself referee and make sure both benches don't, don't end clear in a brawl. Um, and there are times I'm, I'm astonished at the rules that our kids will come up with. For instance, if they kick a ball, if they kick a pop fly and it goes to the outfielder and he catches it, they may not be out because if the ball was pitched by the pitcher in such a way that it was a little too bouncy, that caused the ball to go too high and the outfielder caught it. And so they call for a redo. And so at times I have to say, you have heard it said that you can have a redo whenever you want. But I say to you, you're out. <laughs> now we have to understand the scribes and Pharisees of the day, they were like second graders with the law of God. They were misunderstanding it. They were misapplying it. They were bending it in order to make it doable for them. But Jesus doesn't play by their kickball rules, so to speak. Jesus comes and he redefines righteousness. Jesus did not expect them to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees by playing by their own rules. He redefined it. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. And if we've reduced Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts, we have missed the point. What Jesus is doing is addressing the very heart and mind 
the very motives of our obedience. So how do we surpass the scribes and the Pharisees in righteousness? By actually having a heart for God that manifests itself in inner purity and outward goodness. Or I could say it another way. We surpass the scribes and Pharisees by continuing to grow in the character of the Beatitudes, which pours itself out in our lives with the fruit of salt and light, what Jesus has already talked about clearly. Again, we've got to remember the big picture. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he is explaining what righteousness in the kingdom is all about. And now he goes on to give illustrations of what that kind of righteousness looks like. And so here we turn to the topic of anger. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had some of our friends' uh, children over to play. And Ty is upstairs playing with one of his little friends. And uh, Ty, I'm downstairs, and I hear Ty coming down the stairs, and he's crying. And he's saying, he punched me in the face. He punched me in the face. And so uh, the he, uh, to protect his identity, will call him Jack. So little Jack, I found out, indeed, he punched him in the face. And so I, I go to Ty. Uh, and I go to Jack. I say, Jack, did you, did, you punch, uh, did you punch Ty in the face? He says, no. I said, well, did you hit Ty? He said, yes. See, and there I understood. Uh, my son is, it's not that he's advanced knowing the term punched. It's that he gets punched a lot by his older brothers. And they're constantly saying, Ty, punch me. Ty, punch me. So he knows that term. And the other child it comes from a nonviolent family. So he didn't necessarily know the term um, punch. But as, as it ends up... Uh, Ty sought to take a toy away from his little friend Jack, and Jack was going to have none of that. So I think, you know, it's a little people squabble. Boys will be boys. I think, okay, it's over, I thought. And then a few minutes later, uh, we're sitting at the table, and Ty's on my lap. I'm doing some work on the computer, and Jack is sitting over here, and he has a toy, the same toy that he's playing with, and Ty's just kind of staring over there. Finally, toy point, Ty points at the toy, says, I want that. I said, Ty, you can't have it. You can play with it later. And he sits quietly for a while. Then he points over again and mumbles something. I said, Ty, what, what did you say? And he points at Jack and he says, I want to punch him in the face. <laughs> that illustrates our lives. We get angry and we want to get even. At times we rage in our hearts. But at other times when people are angry with us, we think, oh, well, that's all right. They'll get over it. It's their fault. It's their problem at this point. And so we are tempted to look at the sin of anger as a, as a respectable sin. And I quote that from a new book of Jerry Bridges where he talks about respectable sins. I want to read a passage in here that Jerry Bridges says that I think speaks to our casual attitude about the sin of anger. He says this, we tend to think of our anger in terms of episodes. We get angry and then we get over it. Sometimes we apologize to the person who is the object of our anger. Sometimes we don't. But somehow the other person, apology or not, gets over his defensive response, whether an angry outward retort or an inner resentment, and life goes on as usual. The relationship has been scarred but not broken. It's not a great way to live with one another, but it's tolerable. That seems to be the way far too many believers view the sin of anger. They've just come to accept it as part of life. And isn't that true? Anger indeed is part of life. But Jesus has something to say to us of the topic of anger. And he begins by taking on 
the reality of what the sixth commandment, do not murder, actually means. He says in verse 21, you've heard, it, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So let's step back. So what's wrong with what the scribes and Pharisees are actually saying? They are quoting, you shall not murder from the Ten Commandments that we find in Exodus chapter 20. And they go on to combine it with Numbers 3530, which states, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. So what they're saying is true, except for the fact that the scribes and Pharisees had reduced this to the act of murder alone. In other words, as long as we don't murder, we're keeping the sixth commandment. And furthermore, the, uh, the reality of judgment. The scribes and Pharisees said, if you commit this act, you're liable to judgment. But what they mean by judgment is judgment before the highest court, the Sanhedrin. They had no mention of the judgment of God. So what they have done here is they've reduced the sixth commandment to just being the act of murder, in a sense, they have, they have a very superficial understanding of righteousness, and they have a very shallow understanding of the judgment of God. But again, our Lord doesn't treat us as second graders and just give us a to-do list. And, and for us to expect that if we're just doing the right things, that is righteous. In fact, God doesn't simply observe our behaviors, but he observes the attitudes and the very motives of our hearts. And so Jesus here doesn't allow righteousness to be defined according to what we do and don't do. Jesus takes it to another level. The scribes and the Pharisees kept it up here, above the waterline, the tip of the iceberg. And Jesus sends a torpedo below the waterline to the iceberg, which is truly anger, the thing that brings about the act of murder. And so if anger leads to murder, then anger is guilty as well. And Jesus goes on to talk about that in verse 22. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus is saying here that everybody with, who is angry is liable to judgment. Now we can pause and say, But what does he mean by angry? Like, what does that mean in the Greek? And we'd have to say in the Greek, angry means angry. It's the things we experience. Bitterness, rage, hatred, frustration, all those things that are wrapped around the anger that we experience. We might say, well, what about righteous anger? Isn't there room for righteous anger? Absolutely. Jesus demonstrated righteous anger, and he, he, he demonstrated it perfectly because he was the son of God. And his anger was not directed as the person as much as a hatred of evil and desiring to follow the will of God. But if we're honest with ourselves, that's not our anger, often. There might be righteous aspects to our anger, but so often our anger is directed not at the sin, but at the person. So Jesus here is not really talking about righteous anger. He's talking about the anger that you and I experience probably on a day-to-day -day level or day-to-day -day basis. Jesus forbids unrighteous anger, as well as he's going to forbid casual insults, as well as contempt. And he does this because he says, whoever insults by saying raka. Okay, that term uh, would be understood. It's, it's an assault on the mind. It's going after somebody's intelligence on the level of saying stupid moron or idiot, or as Lucy calls Charlie Brown, blockhead. Or it could be blonde jokes if they're directed um, in a mal with malice intent. 
Though I must say, I'm not willing to give up all blonde jokes because I have three pretty good ones, as long as they're not with malice intent. But anyway, the point here is these are insults, insults that are aimed at the head. But then Jesus goes on to talk about insults that are aimed at the heart and the character. And that's where, it says, Jesus says, whoever says you fool be liable to the hell of fire. And this would be an expression of abuse. This would be going after somebody's heart and character. Maybe you can help me out with this one as the first service before second service. Because a word that some of the people would use on this one is scoundrel. Now, that, that seems to me somewhat of a dated term. So if you have a, I thought of a few terms that wouldn't actually be appropriate uh, in public. But if you've got a good term to be able to manifest what that true anger that's going after heart and character, that would be helpful for me for next service. But the bottom line is this. Jesus is saying, don't listen to the scribes and Pharisees when they tell you that judgment is only based on what you do as far as murder. You are in danger of judgment if you are angry with your brother, or we could say as well your sister, and meaning those in the family of God, but we could rightly apply it to those in our families as well, our friends as well, people that are close to us. And this is a tough teaching because we can be tempted to dismiss the weight of what Jesus is saying. But we must not miss Jesus' words. He says, I say to you, this is no mere man. This isn't just a good moral teacher. This is the Son of God in the flesh that is giving us the very law of God. And woe to us if we, like the scribes and Pharisees, Empty the weight of what he is saying to go ahead and accommodate our lives. Jesus is giving us the very correction that our hearts need. And Jesus probes the depth of our often ugly hearts to show us that our thoughts and motives are equally as important as our actions. If you would, turn over a few pages to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, Jesus is going to go on to talk about what defiles a person. And again, he's teaching against the, the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. He says this in Matthew 18, or Matthew 15, verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. See, behavior modification only gets us so far. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that our hearts are desperately wicked. They are desperately sick. Behavior modification won't cut it. What we need is actually transformation from God upon our hearts. So yes, we can murder by taking someone's life. But we also can murder in a lot of other ways. We can murder people with our speech, with cutting words. We can murder somebody when we go after their reputation because of gossip and slander. Oftentimes, we can murder people as we criticize them. We can murder their soul with criticism. This is where we have to be very, very cautious with all relationships in our life. But in particular, as parents, we've got to be very careful that we do not murder the soul of our kids with statements we make of their unworthy They'll never amount to anything or other abusive type statements that we might make. 
We have to be very careful as well as husbands and wives that we do not murder the soul of our spouse with harsh criticisms. As well, we have to be careful with our, uh, with our husbands and wives that uh, for the sake of just venting, we're not murdering others as well. We've got to be very careful and cautious. The scriptures teach us to control what we say. If you would, if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29 says this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And I'll continue on. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, which would be brawling, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, this speaks of the sins of anger and brawling and slander, all those. And the verse says to put it away. How do we put it away? I want to draw out some principles from Scripture that actually I... uh, that Jerry Bridges speaks a lot of in his book as well that I found very helpful. Here's a few principles. Now, they're not four easy steps because this isn't an easy issue, but I do believe these are things that can be helpful to us. The first one is we must recognize the anger. We can't deal with our anger before God if we're not honest about it with ourselves. To illustrate this, there was years ago a, a woman that worked in campus ministry had a situation where a student came up to her to confide that her roommate was struggling with an eating disorder. And and the roommate was also, with the eating disorder, was also in the ministry. And so the campus minister, her name was Paige, rightly understood that she had to deal with the eating disorder, but she also understood wisely she had to deal with the informant. Because she knew the girl well, and she understood that the girl with an eating disorder had been asked out recently on a lot of dates. And the other girl had not. And so what Paige had to do was help her to understand that there was a lot of anger and a lot of jealousy there. She was helping her be honest with herself. That's what we have to do. We have to understand, be honest with ourselves. We can't excuse it away. We can't blame it. We can't justify it. We've got to see that the anger is actually there, which leads us to the next principle, and that is that we have to ponder and confess We have to be able to ponder and say, why am I so angry over this? And if we ask that question and lay that out before God, usually that will lead us to various other things like jealousy, like pride, selfishness, idolatry, meaning we put something above God. We're worshiping something more than we're worshiping God. And we've got to be able to understand that stuff is driving our anger, and we've got to confess it, which obviously leads us to God. And that's the third principle is seek to trust God. Seek to have a well-grounded trust in the sovereignty, the wisdom, the very love of God. Because he allows hard things in our lives to bring about great purpose. To illustrate this, um, I remember a few years ago I was telling Scott Ketro, who many of us know, a missionary from our church, um, I was telling Scott Cutchell that, that, the, that the fun, relaxing game of golf drives me so crazy that I want to wrap a club around a tree. And he looked at me and says, you know what golf is? I'm like, no, what? Tell me. Please give me the key to this game. 
said, it's sanctification. <laughs> and it hit me, and I've never forgot that. It's sanctification. In other words, it's, it's the ability to grow closer and more in the image of Christ. And isn't that true, not just with golf, but all areas of our life, events that happen, relationships that are in our life, they give us opportunity to really wrestle with ourselves and to come closer to God. They give us opportunities for us to really see our hearts and to be able to hand over to God the reality of who we are and the things that make us angry. And the final principle is forgive. Even this passage here, the, the Ephesians passage, calls us to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us. And we're to forgive as God forgives. To be able to say, oh yes, I have been forgiven of many sins. I can forgive this one. At this moment, though, I, obviously I need to make a disclaimer here. That there are things that are hard to forgive. And that is continuous explosive anger. Or even abusive anger. I want to be cautious here. I realize there are great difficulties on these levels. And oftentimes they need further biblical pastoral counseling. What I'm referring to here is more of our, what we would consider ordinary of normal sins that we all experience. But then Jesus takes this even further. In the next verses, 23 and 24, Jesus says this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come off to your gift. This passage is easy to misread. We think, at least I assume he's going to say, so if you remember that you're angry with somebody, forgive them or go to them. We know we have to do that, but that's not what Jesus says. Look closely. He says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, and now we have to stop and see the progression of what Jesus is doing. In verse 21, he, forbid, he forbids murder. Verse 22, he forbids anger and insults against others that are our brothers. But then in this verse, he's going to go on to essentially to drive us to prevent murderous intentions from others towards us. He's calling us to a great responsibility here, a very difficult responsibility. Jesus is saying, contrary to the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, it's not enough just for you not to murder. We have to love others enough to reconcile with them, especially when they're angry with us. We can say, well, but what if it's not justified? What if their anger, what if it's their own deal? And this is where we have to understand the principle. What does it mean to really love our brothers and sisters in Christ? It means at times to love them enough to go to them, even if we feel like their anger towards us isn't justified. Because it's not about us at this point. It's about the body of Christ and what God is calling us to do. And this is such a serious matter that Jesus says, if you're often offering your gift at the altar, in other words, if you are even in the midst of worship and you remember that your brother has something against him, he gives us the principle of leave, go, and come. You leave the altar at that point. In a sense, we can keep God waiting because God values reconciliation that much. We leave, we go to them to work it out, and then we come back to the Lord. So you see what this means. This means we might have to take some very uncomfortable steps once in a while. We might have to interrupt our worship or interrupt another person's worship 
in order to humble ourselves and go to them. We might have to actually ask for forgiveness. We might look or feel stupid in this whole process. But if we take this serious, what it does is it puts us in a very humble position. And even as I say that, we should hear the echo of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn their sin and the sin of others. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, hunger and thirst to do righteousness out of love, not just duty. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. That is what God is calling us to as peacemakers. And think about how important this is going to be for the life of the church. The disciples are going to go on to advance the gospel. They're going to go on to advance the church. And Satan is going to come against them with all the force that he can. And they must stay unified in the gospel. In the same way, we as Christians are, con- are to continue to advance the gospel. And think about how Satan would love to come against us and attack us. And even within the church. As followers of Christ, we cannot allow the festering anger. There's not time for that. We cannot allow the ministry efforts that we have to be sabotaged by gossip and by slander and by bitterness and resentment on all those things that so often can plague youth groups and tear people apart because of, uh, because of various cliques. Or it could be women's ministry could be Bible studies in covenant groups, could be casual conversations in the hall. We cannot allow it. The gospel is too important. The gospel is too important. And not only are we to heed this call in the worship aspect, but other places, it's clear that, uh, for instance, 1 Peter 3, 7, calls husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way so that their prayers are not hindered. The reality is our, God greatly values our relationships with others. In a sense, our relationship with God is enhanced as we are working these things out. And our relationship with God is hindered as we are not working these things out. And so we are to quickly reconcile within the church. But as well, God calls us to reconcile outside the church as well or outside of the, uh, the relationship with believers. And he does this in verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This message is quite clear that we are to consider our broken relationships as urgent. And yes, we are to go to our believers in Christ and work it out. But we're also to tend to and come to terms quickly with our accuser. In other words, with our enemies. Why they are seeking to take us to court or whatever it might be. However, we would apply that in our day and age. And so if we're seeking to obey the sixth commandment of do not murder, we see that we've got to take positive steps to live at peace with everyone. I want to read um, a section out of... uh, out of Martin Lloyd-Jones's commentary. I'm not a huge highlighter, but I found myself highlighting every line of a paragraph. So I just thought, I just have to read this thing. So Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, How do we feel at this point? As we have seen our Lord's exposition of this holy law, do we feel the demands of the law? 
Are we aware of the condemnation? What are the things that we have said and thought, the things we have done? Are we aware of this, the utter condemnation of it all? It is God making demands through his law. I thank God for the injunction that tells us to act as quickly as we can while we are in the way. Thank God his terms are very easy. They are just this, that I face and acknowledge the sin and confess it utterly and absolutely. That I stop any self-defense or self-justification, though there was provocation from this other person. I must just confess and admit it without any reservation to God. If there is something in actual practice that I can do about it, I must do it at once. I must humble myself, make a fool of myself, as it were, and let the other person gloat over me if necessary, as long as I've done everything I can to remove the barrier and the obstacle. He will then tell me that all is right. I will settle with you, he will say. Indeed, I will forgive it all, because though you are a guilty and foul sinner before me, and the bill you owe me is one that you can never pay, I have sent my son into your world, and he has paid it for you. He has canceled it. He did not do it because you are loving and kind and good. He did it not because you have done nothing, but instead it was while you were an enemy, hateful in yourself, hating me, hating others. It was in spite of all your foulness and unworthiness that I sent him. And he came deliberately and gave himself even unto death. It is because of all this that I may forgive you utterly and freely and absolutely. Thank God for such terms, such terms for bankrupt, foul sinners. Those are the terms, utter, absolute confession and repentance, everything we can do by way of restitution, and acknowledgement that we are forgiven only as the result of the grace of God, manifested perfectly in the loving, self-giving, self-sacrifice of the Son of God upon the cross. Come to a quick agreement. Do not delay. Whatever you may be convicted of at this moment, come, leave your gift, run away, put it right. I gotta saved you 25 minutes of sermon with that right there. Wow. So it seems the commandment, do not murder, it seems so simple, didn't it? Notice what Jesus has done in this passage, though. He has taken us to the very heart of the law of God. Love of God and love of neighbor. We're to love our brothers and sisters by giving up murder, giving up anger, giving up slander and hatred and gossip. We're to love actively, to go to seek to reconcile not only our broken relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but as well our enemies. It's a tall order. So here's a question that we're left with. Did Jesus practice what he preached? And we'd have to say, oh yes. Look at his life. The scribes and the Pharisees raged against our Lord for many things, but especially because he claimed to be God. And because of that, he was arrested, he was mocked, he was beaten, and all the while, he did not retaliate. The scribes and Pharisees won the crowd over to the point where they yelled, crucify him, crucify him, and our Lord did not retaliate. In fact, the scriptures say, when they were going against him upon the crucifixion, our scriptures say, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And 1 Peter 2 says this, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Oh, that we might imitate the Savior by entrusting ourselves to the true judge when we feel wronged. Jesus did it perfectly, but we're not Jesus, right? 
with a proper understanding of these scriptures, we do see that we're all murderers in one form or another. But here is our hope. That the one, the one who gives us these commands is the, very, is the very one that perfectly obeyed them. Perfectly obeyed them. It was the same Jesus who he is the one who fulfilled the law. He is the one who took our judgment. He is the one who offered his perfect life. He offered himself as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. But he did not suffer for everyone. He did not suffer for the scribes and the Pharisees or anyone else who thinks that we can lay our good works before the Lord and at the same time reject Jesus. No, he suffered for those who entrusted themselves to the Lord. He, he suffers for those who embrace their need for a Savior. And verses 25 and 26 hold out a strong warning. We are to deal with our accuser quickly or we face prison. And yet there's something much more critical for us to understand. That we are to deal with God quickly. Because the judgment that we face, there is a judgment day the scriptures talk about. Judgment is far worse than prison. Jesus speaks of it as as an eternal hell. And so it is imperative that we be reconciled to God. And our only way of doing that is through the cross, through Jesus. But we see that what Jesus has given us is his very righteousness. And he has given us the encouragement of grace. And he has given us the very Holy Spirit that in moment by moment we continue, when we fail to confess and to continue to look for Christ and ask him to change our hearts, ask him to continue to make us a people that are more loving. So righteousness is a heart-level issue. So this leads us to ask, has there been anything in me that has been unlike Christ? Any thoughts, any imaginations, any desires, any impulses? And this question should lead us to a greater awareness of our poverty of spirit. should lead us to a greater awareness of our weakness, therefore a greater awareness of our sin. But then we don't stay with our heads bowed. We raise our hands. We look to Jesus, a greater awareness of his mercy and grace, which leads us to a hunger and thirst for righteousness for true righteousness that is of the heart. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words of Jesus. We thank you that not only did he give us the full weight of the law, but he applied it. He took it on himself. Thank you that he was faithful to all that you called us to and that where we fail, he was perfectly faithful. Thank you that he he is our righteousness. I pray that you would help us to cling to him. Help us through your grace and through your Holy Spirit to pursue righteousness from a heart that is truly devoted to you. Father, we struggle in so many ways. And there are many things that as a congregation we're struggling with, various illnesses, jobs because of our economic downturn that bring great difficulties and losses difficult circumstances that we face in various ways, difficult relationships, and many of these things cause us to be very angry. Help us to be mindful of you, that you do bring about all things in our lives, and you, can, you do and you can create uh, great purposes out of them, even if we don't see them. Help us to trust in your sovereignty. Help us to trust in your wisdom. Help us to trust you because of your love. And in particular, Lord, we do pray for Fred and Diane and their families. They continue to grieve the loss 
of Fred's father. And there's others, especially around this Christmas season, that are struggling and grieving with the loss of loved ones. Lord, be with them. Pray that you would comfort them in a way that only you can. Father, we do bring our struggles to you, but as well, we bring our joys. We want to give thanks for the birth of Campbell James Liebengood to Kelly and Marietta. Be with them, Father, as they bless their family, and especially as Marietta continues to heal, Father, pray that you would be with her especially. And Father, we pray, as always, for the ministry of this church, our missionaries that go out from us, Father, pray that you would be with them, cause them to be greatly effective and to feel your love and comfort. At the same time, for all of us, Father, I pray that we would understand our lives to be that of salt and light, and that you would not let roots of bitterness or anything else really strangle out the gospel. I pray that we would go forth as a church in all pockets of our society, all pockets of Lawrence, throughout the world, that we would be effective for your name and for your glory. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. And now please stand for the benediction. And the response to the benediction will be to sing our last song together. And now receive this as the Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Oh